In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul expresses his deepest desires for these people whom he loves. So in Colossians 2, 1 through 5, Paul is expressing his deep desires for the people he loves. Before I preach this sermon this morning, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us your word. And we thank you for giving us minds to read and think about and meditate on your word. We thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit to work with our minds and with our hearts so that we would understand what your word says. We thank you, God, for using your word and using your truth to change us, to give us more joy, to give us more strength, to give us more unity. Thank you for all these blessings that you bring us by your spirit and through your word. We ask you to do it again this morning through the preaching of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you look back at the verses just before our text today, the end of chapter 1 of Paul's letter to the Colossians, verses 24 through 29, which I preached on two weeks ago, you'll remember that the Apostle Paul, in those verses, he gave a description of his ministry. He gave a description of his ministry as an apostle of Jesus Christ. A very unique ministry, like other pastoral ministry in some ways. Very different from other pastoral ministry in other ways. We don't have any more apostles. In fact, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Ephesians 2.20 tells us the foundation... So there's no more apostles. They're in the foundation. We're built on them. It's a very unique ministry. And Paul was shedding light on that ministry for the Colossians. And he gave us, as we read, insight into uh, the goal of his ministry, the task of his ministry, and the experience of his ministry. And here's what we learned from Paul's personal account. We learned that his goal in his ministry as a pastor was mature Christians. So Paul, what are you after? Mature Christians. Not just Christians, but mature Christians. Not just baby Christians or immature Christians as you all either are or were, but mature Christians growing up in the faith. Okay, Paul, what was your task what was the means by which you went after that goal of mature Christians? You remember what he said? Teaching the Word of God. I want to make known to you wholly the Word of God. And so he proclaimed Jesus to them and proclaimed the Gospel to them. And elsewhere we know he did not hesitate to declare the entire, the whole counsel of the Word of God. And then we may ask, Paul, what was the experience of your ministry? What was it like? And his experience, he says, here and in other letters, was painful. So his goal was mature Christians. His means was teaching the Word of God. And his experience in this was painful. So pastors learn something from Paul. I mean, we all learn something from Paul. But pastors learn something that's very personal from Paul. Because Paul is saying to pastors today or those who might aspire to be pastors, okay, pastors, your goal is mature Christians. That's your goal. That's your goal. What am I a pastor for? Well, this is what you better be a pastor for. Mature Christians. That's what you're after. Okay, not necessarily a big church. Not, not a great reputation. Not, not write your accomplishments and your namesake. Not... Not having your church be renowned in the city for this and this and this. No personal agendas. You've got to fight that. Because everybody's got personal agendas. I have personal agendas. Find myself doing things even in this church. Well, wait a minute. I shouldn't be doing that. That's a me thing. That's not what God wants me to do. What am I supposed to be after? Mature Christians. 
Paul said, I want to present you, Colossians, mature in Christ. If you have the NIV, complete in Christ. Other translations, perfect in Christ. And that needs to be, my goal is your pastor. Okay, pastors, those who aspire to be pastors, your goal needs to be mature Christians. What do pastors also learn from Paul? Pastors, you, you better teach the Word of God. So pastors got to teach the Word of God. They need to preach the Word of God. It needs to come out in their preaching, of course. It needs to come out when they're teaching a class. It needs to come out in conversation. It needs to come out in counseling appointments. It needs to come out through their administration. The Word of God has to come out through all of that. If the Word of God isn't coming out through all of that, then you're not going to be honoring God, pastors, and you're not going to reach your goal of mature Christians. So, the Word of God has to be central. It's weird, right? Because you, I'm sure, and I have been a part of churches where the Word of God is not central. And that's not a here we are looking down on you other churches. That's a sadness and a sorrow that, man, I wish more churches were centered on the Word of God and had the Word of God just the crucial element in everything that they did, but that's not necessarily the case. So Paul is saying, okay, pastors, your goal is mature Christians, and you better teach and preach the Word of God. And what is the other thing Paul is calling in the pastors here to say? Alright boys, something else you need to know, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt. I took one of my boys in for shots recently. I've had different experiences with... I, I hate shots. I hate shots. Some of you hate shots. It's not even that painful, right? I mean, some of them are. But I just don't like them. I get sweaty. get nervous. Shaking. Start talking about... You know, oh, you have such nice veins, and this is going to be this is going to be easy. And I'm just, oh, just stop talking. Just, you're freaking me out right now. So I'm sensitive when I take. I like to take my boys when they get their shots. I haven't taken my little girl yet. I don't know if I could handle it. But I like to take my boys when we have different experiences, and I I like it when the 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 shooter, the shot giver, whatever you call them, when they are when they're honest with my boys. I do not like it when they're not honest with them. Well, all you're going to feel is a tiny poke. Well, maybe if you're doing like this thing, but when you've got this long needle, it looks like it should go in the back of a horse, and you're going to put it in my you know, eight-year-old shoulder, you tell him he's going to feel a little poke, you are a liar right now. You are lying to my son. I don't, I don't like you right now. We're taking the dentist, right? Oh, I hate the dentist too, but we're taking to the dentist. And this last dentist, we don't, I won't tell you, we don't go there anymore. And one of the, my reasons for not going there anymore is because the dentist would say, okay, um, we're going to give you a little bit of happy juice right now. You have our little, our little happy bumblebees that we're going to put in your mouth. And you'll feel a little, a little pinch from the happy bees. And that, what are you doing? What are you saying to my son? He's 11. He's not two, first of all. Just be honest with it. He can handle it. Like, help. This is what they did with me, and it's why I'm a mess at 37. I don't want him, I want him to be beyond his dad. Not that there were sweaty palms and tears running down his cheeks because he's getting a root canal. Be honest with him. This is so. We had one recently. They went and got shots, and the lady and, and the guy came in. Maybe that was part of it. But I don't know. He was an ex uh, Navy doctor guy and came in, and he looked at my son. He says, "Okay, I'm going to give you two shots. The first one isn't going to hurt. The second one's going to hurt a lot." I said, "Thank you, thank you. Son, this is going to hurt a lot. Are you ready? No. Well, buckle up. It's going to hurt a lot." Now, it did hurt. It did hurt. First one, not so much. Second one, it, it did hurt. 
And my son had to go through that pain. But at least he wasn't upset with the, the doctor, right? He was honest with them. He told them, hey, this is what Paul is doing here for pastors. Those who are pastors, those who want to be pastors, they should read Paul's writings. And, and it's very clear to them, right? That the, you should understand this is going to hurt. This is going to be painful. So he uses words in verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1, like afflictions and his sufferings and toil. And then in verse 29, he talks about his struggling. Struggling. And now that word struggle is in the first verse of our text today. Because what Paul is doing now in chapter 2 in these first few verses is he is describing his struggling for the Colossians. So listen, to be a pastor, to be your pastor, to love you, it is to struggle. And he's going to bring them into what that struggle is like. And he personalizes what he has just said about his ministry. So he's saying, this is my ministry, chapter 1, verses 24-29, through 29, and now this is my ministry for you. Just generally speaking, and now specifically and personally speaking, William Barclay says, here is a brief lifting of the curtain and a deeply moving glimpse into Paul's heart. He is going through a struggle for these Christians whom he had never seen, but whom he loved. Verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Struggle. The Greek word is agnon. Agnon. From which we get our word agony. So he's saying, listen, I want you to know, Colossians, I want you to know how much agony I am in over you. He is in agony over the Colossians. Why is Paul in agony over the Colossians. Well, they're not in physical danger. They're not under persecution as far as we know. They were not in a war zone. They were not starving. Okay, They were not stuck up on a mountain like some of our brothers and sisters who were recently stuck up on a mountain, remember, in northern Iraq with danger below. And you may have felt, as I did, some agony over them. Well, the Colossians aren't in any kind of physical danger like that. No, Paul is not concerned for the Colossians physically. He is concerned for them spiritually. He is agonizing not over their bodies. He's agonizing over their souls. He has soul concern for them. He had learned from their pastor, Epaphras. Remember, Epaphras came and has now seen Paul where Paul's imprisoned in Rome and given him news about what's going on back home. And that's what's prompted this letter that Paul is writing. And Paul had learned that in Colossae, in the church, that there is is false teaching. And there are false teachers. And they are demoting Jesus and demoting the Gospel. And Paul knows what that could lead to for the Colossians. And so, this is causing him great agony. Because these Christians are or potentially could be being led astray. Being led away from Jesus and away from God. Away from the Gospel. So Paul's in agony over it. Now when Paul says, I want you to know, see verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Another way of saying this is, I want you to know how much I love you. This is what Paul is saying. I, I want you guys to know how much I love you. How much I care for you. I want you to know that I care about you so much. 
that this word from your pastor about your church being infected with this false teaching is causing me to be in agony. My spiritual concern for you is so great that it is affecting me physically. Is what Paul is saying. I'm not worried about your bodies, but I'm feeling it in my body. My concern for your souls is so great that it's affecting me physically, he's saying. It's making me sick. The struggle. I'm I'm agonizing here over you. Have we learned something about a pastor here? Pastor Paul? I know most of you are not pastors and And many of you men may not even have a desire to be a pastor, but we do learn here from Paul a necessary requisite for a pastor. Don't we? We learn something from Paul. Something else that is absolutely essential for a pastor. A pastor has to love people. A pastor has to love people. He has to care for people. A pastor is going to have a church. He has to, has to love his church. And love the people in his church. There can't be any such thing as an unloving pastor or an unkind pastor or a merciless pastor or discompassionate Pastor, a mean pastor. Oh, he's really good at teaching and, and he can administrate, but oh, he's not a people person. Doesn't really like people. That's very difficult to be a pastor and not love people. A man that doesn't love people, doesn't love his church, shouldn't be a pastor. It's a requisite for being a pastor. If he can preach well and lead really well and counsel really well and administrate really well but doesn't have love for God's people, then he shouldn't be a pastor. Paul loves people. Whatever a pastor must be, he must be a kind of man that holds the church in his heart. Maybe some of you men aspire to be a pastor. That's a good thing to aspire to be, according to 1 Timothy 3 1. That's a good thing. You must love the church. Anytime I've been in a position where I am called to uh, evaluate a pastor, whether it's here in our church or formerly was part of a network, or I would be involved in assessing pastors that were interested in pastoral ministry. And it would be very easy to have this characteristic clouded by a lot of other gifts that a man might have. Oh, this guy is just built to be a pastor because... I mean, listen to him when he gets behind the pulpit and look how organized he is. I mean, this is the kind of guy that the church is going to blow up It's going to, in a good way. It's going to go well for him. I mean, he leads, people follow, and all these good things. There will be men who have all these qualities, but really important to discern when evaluating or assessing is, is this a loving man? Does he love people? Will he love people? Will he carry his church in his heart? As an under-shepherd, and that's what a pastor is, he must be like the chief shepherd. He must follow the chief shepherd who is Jesus. And Jesus loved the church. Ephesians 5.25, how much did Jesus love the church? He gave himself up for the church. He died for her. In Acts 20.28, when Paul is talking to the elders there in Ephesus and says, listen, you who are overseers, you need to keep watch over, care for, love the flock. And who is the flock? Well, the flock are those whom Jesus, you remember what Paul said, purchased with His blood. Jesus loves the church. Pastors, you need to 
love the church. Philippians 1.7, Paul said, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Paul is always talking like this about his affections for Christians. In 2 Corinthians 3.2, Paul tells the Corinthians they are written on his heart. You're written. You're engraved in my heart. I cannot get away from you. I love you. In chapter 6, verse 11 of that same letter, he said that his heart was wide open toward them. What is he trying to express? His love for them. My heart is wide open toward you. And he said this in chapter 12, verse 15 of 2 Corinthians. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. A pastor has to be willing to do that. Paul says to the Corinthians, I will gladly spend myself and be spent if it means good things for your souls. Paul loved people. And we read this a couple weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 11.28 where Paul has that list of his sufferings, his afflictions, his struggles. And after this list, after he lists all of his physical struggles, he described the painful and abiding inner struggle that he had. And do you remember what that painful and abiding inner struggle he had was? He said, and... Apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And this is the daily pressure that automatically comes on every pastor. Automatically. You're a pastor pastoring people and under-shepherd shepherding people, loving people and leading people. There is automatically... Uh, an appropriate anxiety and worry for your people spiritually, a soul concern that is built into being pastored. must be there if you're going to love God's people. And a pastor feels it physically even. It's what it means to agonize. Don't you feel uncomfortable sometimes physically over people you love? Physically. You physically, over people you love, who you're concerned for, you agonize over them, don't you? You've had times where you physically have felt in your body, not just in your mind, but physically felt in and through your body your concern for someone you love. Your anxiety for someone you love. It's interesting, I think, from my own experience and in talking to others, you don't, you don't necessarily feel that physically in your heart, do you? We say, my heart, what? My heart breaks for you. My heart aches for you. I find I don't, I don't feel this anxiety and this agonizing over the people I love in my church. I don't really feel it in my heart. I know what that expression means but I actually feel it in my stomach. Is this where you feel the worry and the tension and the anxiety over those you love? My stomach is tied up. Can you finish that? My stomach is tied up in what? In knots, right? You know what that's like to feel? When you have even good and high emotions, whether high emotions or low emotions, you feel these things physically in your gut. In your abdominal region. You know, your Bible actually speaks of this. All kinds of verses in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It may sound weird instead of saying my heart aches for you to say my stomach aches for you. It's actually more true, isn't it? To first century Jews and Gentiles, when this is being written, the emotions were not represented by the heart but the bowels. Emotions high and low felt in the abdominal area. be more appropriate, I've said this before in the first century, to say, I love you with all my bowels. It would be really strange 
today to say what they may say then if you could not control your emotions. I find that I cannot control my bowels. This is true, right? You have no control over what you're feeling in your stomach when this anxiety is prompted in you and this agony over people you love. Whether you feel great joy or excitement or exhilaration or worry, you feel it where? In your gut. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 4. I'll just read two verses so you know I'm not making this up. Song of Solomon 5, 4, and we'll go King James on this one. My beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door, and my bowels were moved for him. That wouldn't work today, would it? (laughs) Here she is with the one that she loves. They're going to consummate their relationship and her bowels are moved. When Scripture speaks of bowels, it is this entire abdominal area as high as your chest. And this is where we do feel emotion or Jeremiah in Lamentations 2.11, Jer- the book of Lamentation is just Jeremiah pouring out his broken heart. He's so broken over his people and how they have turned from God. And in chapter 2, verse 11, he said, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. You know what that's like, don't you? I'm tied up in knots. I can tell you personally that so many sermons and meetings and counseling appointments are preceded by physical uncomfortableness for me. And this is true. And I do feel this daily pressure. And it's uncomfortable or painful at times. There is rarely a Sunday morning where I don't feel uncomfortable before I preach. Today was not different from most Sundays. I have not eaten yet today. I cannot eat. I can drink something, but I cannot eat because my stomach is tied up in knots because I feel the pressure of what's taking place right now. I've got to preach the Word of God and I've got to preach it well and truthfully, and honestly, and prayerfully. And what's at stake is your soul. Only your soul. And eternal destinies, right, could be determined in moments during this sermon. And lifelong change could be prompted in this sermon. Not because of me, but because of what I'm wielding in this time. And that just freaks me out. I can't even eat most Sunday mornings or counseling appointments where I'm going. I just My stomach, is, I just want to get the counseling appointment over with sometimes because I'm just so worried and concerned and in agony over your souls. Am I going to say the right thing? Am I going to do the right thing? What's to come of this? God, help me to trust you, but I'm worried about where this person is going and where they're headed. and I don't feel equipped for this. It is this daily pressure that is on you too when it comes to the people that you love. And I love all of you. I understand what Paul talks about when he has this daily pressure. I remember years ago, and some of you will remember this, when we had a member here, a response, Respectable member, an older gentleman, elder candidate type member of our church who started to stray theologically and now has strayed theologically. And I just remember being sick for weeks, having nightmares. Not eating the same, drinking the same, stomach tied up in knots, pleading with him to no avail, feeling like a total failure. I know I'm not, but you're just feeling this way. It is a requisite for a pastor. And please don't hear me saying in these illustrations that are personal that I've 
you know, nailed this or something. It's a long way to go. But it is a requisite for a pastor that he love people. That he, like Paul, agonizes over people. Paul loved these people. And something else worth noting, we see it in verse 1 and we'll see it again in verse 5, that makes Paul makes a point of noting it, and that is that Paul had never met these people. Think about that. What did he say in verse 1? I have this struggle, right? And I want you to know about it for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And then in verse 5, he's going to say, though I am absent from you in body. He'd only met one guy from these. He's probably writing to three churches or thinking of three churches here. He says, you and all the churches. The one in Colossae, the one in Laodicea, which he mentions, and then Heropolis, which he'll mention in chapter 4. He's only met one guy from these churches, Epaphras, the pastor who has come to him. He hasn't even met these people. Three towns with three churches with people he has never met, never seen them face to face, but that does not make them far from his heart and from his thoughts. How do you love people you've never even met? I ask myself. How do you love people you have never even met? 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. That's how. Well, how do you love these Christians? Because you're used to loving people that, right, that you know and that you've interacted with, you've talked to and developed affections for them, and some not, and can often as I can be prone to being discriminatory even in your love for people. I love this person. I don't really love this person. You know what that's like. Well, here Paul, these people he hasn't even met. Well, how's that work? Because a Christian loves all Christians, whether they've met him or not, because they love Jesus. Right? Head in the body, head in the body, head in the body. Don't separate the body from the head. Don't separate the head from the body. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. Inseparable. You can't hate the church and love Jesus. You can't hate Jesus and love the church. And people try to do all of those things. I'm happy with one. I'm not happy with the other. I'll follow one. I won't follow the other. I love Jesus, but I don't have anything to do with the church. These things are impossible to do. It does not work. Because they're inseparable. The head and the body. So how do you love Christians everywhere, even those you haven't met? Well, you love Jesus. And you have been really, really spiritually united to them. And so you love them. Maybe you felt that before. Like some of those Christians that I mentioned earlier in northern Iraq. Maybe there's others. You find yourself feeling genuine love and concern. I mean, it's like you want to see them and you want to know them and you want to hug them and you want to help them and you, and you don't even know them. You've never even met them. But you know they know Jesus and you know that you're going to be with them for eternity and you have this affection that is in your heart. Why? Because you love God. And as John said, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So Paul loved these people because he loved Jesus. And if you love Jesus, you love His people. Verses 2 and 3 now. Verses 2 and 3. Paul is going to bring them into his struggle. He just introduced it in verse 1. I want you to know how great a struggle I have and now he's going to describe it. He's going to tell them what he is hoping and praying for them. His deepest desires for them. Because if you love someone, you have deep desires for them. You have goals for them. You want them to amount to something. You know this with your children. You love them, and you, so you have goals for them. You have desires for them. As we read what Paul says, we're not surprised. It isn't health or promotions or material prosperity that he desires for those he loves, but as Matthew Henry put it, soul prosperity. Listen. That's what you want to want for the people you love. Want that for people 
He love. Soul prosperity. If I do all the things you want for those people that you love, I want this for them, I want this for them, I want that for them. I hope they have all these things. I hope they have a nice life and I hope they, have a, uh, they find a nice husband or wife and I hope they have children and, and I hope they're successful. Of course, you want these things for people you love. But if all the things you want for the people you love want this the most, want their soul to prosper. Even if it means that materially they don't prosper, it's the opposite of prosper, they're poor, whatever, but their soul prospers, you want that deal. That's the one you take. That's what you pray for. You want their soul to prosper. No surprise. It's what Paul wants. Before we read verses 2 and 3, just read verse 4 with me. Because Paul says in verse 4, I say this, and the this is verses 2 and 3. So I just want us to understand why he's saying it before we even read it. I say this, verses 2 and 3, we'll get there, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What was happening in Colossae? False teachers with what kinds of arguments? Plausible arguments. Huh? That kind of makes sense. I kind of see where this false teacher is coming from. Because I don't want you to be deluded and deceived by these arguments that they're making as to why Jesus shouldn't be number one and you can put things before Him and beside Him. Because I don't, I don't want you to go that way. So this is what Paul wants for them. Verses 2 and 3. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So verse 4 tells us why Paul is saying, verses 2 and 3, and verses 2 and 3 are telling us what will keep them in Christ, keep them from being deceived and deluded and going astray. This is what will keep them. Namely, three things. Can you see it broken up like that? Three things. That their hearts may be encouraged. That's one. Being knit together in love. That's two. And then three, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. First thing, that their hearts may be encouraged. And strengthened is probably for us, our understanding, a better word for encouraged here. Same Greek word is translated elsewhere as strengthened. So we can do that. Paul wants their hearts to be strengthened Strong hearts. If you're not going to be deluded and deceived by this false teaching, you've got to have strong, courageous, bold, emboldened, encouraged hearts. He's praying that for them. Desires that for them. Strong hearts. Now remember heart. Remember it means something different to Paul than it might often mean to us today. He's not saying strong emotions. When we say strong heart, we may mean strong emotions. That's not just what Paul is talking about. It actually means something closer to strong minds. Your hearts are thinking hearts. Our hearts think Biblically speaking. That's why from our hearts, like Mark 7.21 makes clear in other Scriptures, that for from within, out of man's heart comes all these things that you do. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you say and what you do does not come from your mind, biblically speaking. It comes from your heart, biblically speaking. Proverbs 4.23 is the core of who you are. It is the wellspring of your life, which is why you should guard it. Revelation 18.7 
speaking about Babylon and the end times as she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. So you say things in your heart. And Psalm 53.1 does not say, the fool says in his mind there is no God. Where does he say there is no God? The fool says that in his heart. So your heart is filled with knowledge. And from that knowledge and based on that knowledge, your heart speaks and your heart thinks and your heart acts. And Paul says, I want that to be strengthened. I want your hearts to be strengthened so that you can stand up against these heresies and this false teaching. So what do you do to strengthen your heart? I want you to have strong hearts. I hope you want me to have a strong heart. I want your hearts strengthened. I want them brave and courageous and strong so that you're not tossed this way and that way, so that you're steady like a ship with ballast in a storm. I want those things for you. I hope you want those things for me. How do we, how do we get that? We pray for it. We ask for it. But is there anything that, that we need to do to... Well, what is Paul doing to strengthen their hearts? What is he doing in this letter? Look back at chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, praying, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. You need to be filled with, your heart needs to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You need to know God. You need truth in your heart if you're going to have strong hearts. He says again later in verse 25 of chapter 1, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known. There it is again. Praying God would fill you with knowledge and I'm giving you knowledge from the Word of God. That's what he's struggling for. Verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Remember, that's his task. That's the means. So what is he doing to strengthen their hearts? He's filling them with the Word of God. So we need to be taught the Word of God. We need to hear the Word of God. We need truth put in us if we're ever going to have strong hearts. This is how the heart is strengthened. By the Word of God. Which is why Psalm 119.11 says to store God's Word or to hide God's Word. Where do you store it? Where do you hide it? In your brain? Ultimately, no. Where? In your heart. Hide His Word. Store His Word. We teach our little kids this, right? Where? In your heart. You love people. You want them to have strong hearts. So what do you do? You load their hearts with truth. So they can make a distinction. And they won't be deluded by plausible arguments. Paul says, I know, they're plausible arguments. You know, every wrong argument isn't stupid. We can't be naive enough to think that I'm just going to spot every wrong argument argument because it's just going to be dumb and stupid and obvious and it won't make any sense because they're all stupid and dumb and don't make any sense and I know what I'm talking about and don't be naive. Right? Don't be naive. Have Have you not put your feet in the waters of something really bad doctrinally speaking and figured it out after you'd had your feet in there for a while? Because I have. Hearing something, reading something, that makes sense. I like that. That's plausible. Is it biblical? Is it biblical? So we need the Word of God in our hearts. Being knit together in love, it's the second thing. I want your hearts to be encouraged, strengthened. I want you to be knit together in love. Knit together 
could also use the word united. If we want the Colossians to be knit together. We want our church to be knit together. I want you to be united. What unites believers together practically? What does Paul say? What unites believers together practically? Love. Love. Being knit together in love. It's not enough just to have theology. We're moving on now. Want your hearts to be strengthened. Want your hearts loaded with truth. But then that needs to be practical. You need to live this out. That truth that you have should prompt you to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbors yourself. So you need to be loving others. If you're loving others, you'll be united together practically. Now I say, I'm making a distinction. I'm saying practically united because Christians are already united positionally. But there's a difference. So in one sense, if you're a Christian here today, you and me and you and every other Christian here, you are, you are knit together. You're united. You're family. Positionally. But not necessarily practically. Right, so if there's division in the church, we're not practically united. We're being unkind to one another. We're holding grudges against one another. Ignoring one another. We're not, we're not knit together practically. You still are positionally. You're united to them. But not practically speaking. Paul's talking practically here. That your hearts would be strengthened, loaded with truth, and now be knit together in love. Love one another. Like he'll describe later in this letter in chapter 3 of Colossians, verses 12 through 15. I can't wait to get there. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay, listen, Christians. Listen. Listen, church. How do we how do we love one another? Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul would say in his letter to the Philippians, the second chapter and the first few verses, he gives a key to loving people, loving Christians this way, and it is in humility to consider others better than yourself. Is everybody better than you? If as a Christian, you think every other Christian is better than you, you're on the right foundation to be knit together with them in love. Are they better than you? Are you better? Start stacking up, right? The good in your life, the bad in their life. Eh, I don't know. Just trying to be objective here. Looks like there's a lot more good right here. A lot more bad over there. What? How did you ever get into that game, right? We get in that game. How did you ever get there? You're not supposed to get there. You're supposed to be comparing yourself to Jesus, not to others. That keeps you small. I want to be big, so I'm going to compare myself to other people. I mean, I do this, you do this. Come on, right? But don't do that. We do it, but don't do it. You're not supposed to compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to Jesus. Imitate Him. And imitate others as they imitate Him. Stack yourself up against God and His perfect law. And His standards. I don't know what someone else is doing and achieving. And if you do that and you think like that, then everyone else is, guess what? They're better than me. Because you're not even getting into that game of stacking it up and putting my things next to your things, and here's what I did, and here's what you did, and here's how I pastored, and here's how you pastored. <laughs> your church tanked, and look what my church is doing, and on and on and on we can go in our hearts and minds with these selfish thoughts. What are we doing? 
We're not considering ourselves lower than others, but better than others. And we can't love them then. Not genuinely. I mean, we can fake it and pretend so that they like us and think we're real loving. Oh, right? Be knit together in love, Paul says. So do you love your church this way? And I would speak especially to those of you who are regular attendees here and those of you who are members here. If you're regularly attending, I assume you consider this, at least now, your church home. And if you're members, I know you consider this your church home. And I know you've declared that this is your family. So do you love your church this way? Do you love with a love that shows no discrimination? you consider everyone in your church better than you? There should be no avoiding one another here, no bickering, no grudges, no gossip, no rejoicing in failures, no jealousy. But there often is, isn't there? I think they go to second service. Oh, I love that we have two services. I can go and worship God, but I won't have to see them. I don't know if you've done that or not. I have to go to both. It's really rough if you have a problem with me because you just can't get away. (laughs) Do you agonize over God's people this way? God's people far and near. I've always loved this quote by John Calvin. Every Christian should have his church enclosed within his heart and be affected with its maladies as if they were His own, and sympathize with its sorrows and bewail its sins. I have a long way to go when I read that. Do you feel this love in your gut? Paul is an example here. And then third, And these are building on one another. So you get the truth in your heart, strength in your heart, and you live out this truth. So you're loving your church. You're knit together in love. So you got right thinking, get the doctrine and the right living. Okay, love one another. And if you do that, it will reach. You do that to reach, he says, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of what? He says, I want you, if you, if you do this, if you have right thinking and right living and good doctrine in your heart, strong hearts, loving one another, then you may reach this assurance, he says, understanding, knowledge of what? God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul says, That he wants the Colossians to be settled in their understanding of Christ. He wants them to be assured in Christ. He wants them to be confident in Christ. He wants them to feel secure. Because if you feel secure in Christ, this is what you've heard of this the the doctrine of the the perseverance of the saints or the, the doctrine of assurance is one of the greatest joys that a Christian can have. And it is a joy of feeling secure in Christ. Not where you're picturing Jesus as this angry, angry elder brother and God as this angry Father and you better line up and you better do what you need to do because He's just ready to crack the whip and only do that so many times before He kicks you out and He's had enough with you. He's just this domineering Father figure. And if you have that, you know there's, there's no joy in that. The only time you have any joy is when you have a really good day and don't sin a lot. And so you have, like, if you're like me, a couple good days a year. And every other day is really difficult and you don't you you, some of you you don't have joy like this do you you don't have assurance like this you don't have confidence like this you don't you're like a a child that doesn't feel secure in his home most children do and should feel secure in their home and it's the basis for their joy my kids are never wondering if we're going to pick them up from school or not or whether or not we're going to feed them or not 
Some of you have met children where they weren't cared for, they weren't loved, they had no assurance and no security. So they don't trust anybody. They're hiding food off the dinner table in their backpack because they don't know if meals are going to be provided for them. But most children don't even question these things. Totally secure. You want your kids to be secure, right? You don't want to these worries or anxieties. I want you to know that I love you and I love you no matter what. No matter what. It is unconditional. In your relationship with Christ, there's nothing that will bring you more joy than knowing that. That heaven is waiting for you. Eternity is waiting for you. Grace sufficient to get through your years is here for you. Eternal companionship with Christ here for you. Forgiveness over and over here for you. But those blessings that I'm rattling off, they are no good to you if you don't feel confident in them. Does that make sense? That's why assurance is so important. You can rattle them off, but if you don't apply them to yourself, it doesn't doesn't give you any joy. And many Christians struggle with this. Heaven and eternity and Jesus... If, if that's me, if I'm included in that, I just have this gnawing doubt. Paul says, listen, I want you to reach all the riches of having that assurance. Okay? In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants them to feel secure. And he's told us how to get there because they all relate to one another. When you know the truth, strong hearts, and live it out, be knit together in love, and you see God's truth and the Gospel, then as you live it out, operate in your life, you will find confidence and assurance growing in you. So don't make the error of just, for example, listening to this sermon and not applying it. James 1.22, do not merely listen to the Word of God and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. James says, be doers of the Word. So good, you've got good doctrine. You've got good theology. That's great. It is. It's really great. Or it's really nothing. If you don't do anything with it. All theology is practical. It's not like the guy who knows the most about God wins. Or the guy who knows the most about doctrine goes to heaven. That is just not true. I mean, that's not true because you can have a very basic, elemental understanding of the gospel and believe it and die and go to be with Jesus. You don't have to achieve all this. The knowledge, the truth, the doctrine is supposed to be for something. So that you love God more and follow God more and have joy in God more. And if those two things aren't connected, you're going to have no assurance in your life. You're not going to see it working itself out in your life and manifesting through your decisions and through your choices and through your affections and through your joys. In John MacArthur's experience, he has found this, and that's like 46 years of pastoral ministry. He finds that if a Christian is struggling with assurance, they have either, he says, never learned the truth or they have never functioned in the truth. And if those riches of assurance sounds foreign to you, I would ask you, do you really know the truth? Maybe you don't know the truth. Or maybe you really do know the truth and you're not functioning in the truth. You're not applying it. You're not living it out. Heaven and eternal life and grace and forgiveness will do nothing for your joy if you are not assured of them. So Paul says, I don't want you to be deluded by these plausible arguments. I want you to stay true to Christ. And I'm agonizing and struggling because I know you're hearing things that are pulling you away. So I'm praying you have strong hearts. I'm praying you're knit together in love. And I pray you, you, you reach the riches that are yours as you have assurance and are settled in your understanding of who Christ is. And then verse 5. Very pastoral again. He says, For though I am 
absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Isn't that kind and loving? He says, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm coming at you hard. and I want you to know there's a warning here. This is really important. But I also want you to know I see God working in your life and I'm so encouraged by your faithfulness. But it's not one or the other. It's not, I'm encouraged by your faithfulness. You, you seem, you're doing well. And so I'm really not worried about these false teachers and you just don't, don't, don't worry about it. No, because worry about it. Be concerned about it. Watch out. But, then, but let me remind you. Listen, I'm absent with you. I know I'm not there. I wish I could say this face to face, but I'm with you in spirit, right? We're baptized into one spirit. We're united. When I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he lets them know. I'm, I'm agonizing over you, Colossians. I want good things for you. And I know there's a threat. I know there's a threat to that. So I'm praying for you. I'm writing this letter to you. He says, but be encouraged. Be encouraged. I see Christ at work in you. He is the model for all pastors. He is the model for all pastors. All pastors should love Jesus this way and love their church this way and be humbled in the ways they are not loving their church in this way. May God raise up more men. More men to lead churches this way and to love people this way who will preach and teach the Word of God and stand on the Word of God alone. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for our time together today. Be glorified, we pray. Be glorified in our worship of You this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.